0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Quillette podcast. My name's Toby Young, and I'm an associate editor. I recently spoke to Wilfred Riley, an assistant professor of political science at Kentucky State University, about his new book, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. I began by asking him about the legal definition of a hate crime, and then dug down into his finding, reported in his book, That approximately 15% of hate crimes turn out to be hoaxes. Why do so many people perpetrate these hoaxes? What's in it for them? And why are we so willing to take their claims at face value? Professor Riley touched on some of these issues in a recent piece for Colette entitled The Hate Crime Epidemic That Never Was, a Seattle Case Study. Professor Riley, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. Quillette. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War?
2: Sure. So the book that I wrote, Hate Crime Hoax, takes a look at a phenomenon that I think a lot of people have been noticing just looking at the media. But that's the reality that a very large number of at least widely reported prominent hate crime stories, whether you're talking about Jussie Smollett, Uh, Whether you're talking about uh, perhaps Covington Catholic, literally the week before that, where A grew this past year, where a Native American Indian man originally claimed that a group of white prep school athletes had surrounded him, uh, chanted, build the wall, which is a damned ironic thing to say to an Indian, tried to take his uh, sacred drum away. Uh, Whether you're talking about Air Force Academy, Eastern Michigan, Kansas State, the large university scandals, uh, Tawana Brawley going back a bit in the past, Grand Rapids where a young black woman pre-college literally claimed that boorish white men had urinated on her, Yasmin Saweed with the ripped hijab and the harassment from allegedly a group of white, blonde, male Trump supporters. I think you get the point by, by this, Mark. A great number of these turned out not to have occurred. They turned out to have been hoaxes or fakes. And it seems nationally that the rate of these hoaxes is at least 15%. So the book first digs into the question of how many hate hoaxes there are. Uh, Prior to this writing, I don't think that had really been explored outside of sort of technical, research-friendly websites like www.fakehatecrimes.org. And then secondly, and I think more importantly, I look at the question of why this is happening, why there seem to have been hundreds of these cases within the past few years.
1: Before we get into the detail of hate crime hoaxes and why there have been so many of them. I want to try and understand a little bit about the landscape of hate crimes and the data around hate crimes. I mean, is there a common nationwide definition of a hate crime, or does it vary from state to state?
2: So the national definition of hate crime in the USA is uh, very typical of the genre. It's simply a crime that's motivated by quote-unquote animus based on race, religion, national origin, ethnicity, an attack on an Irishman, for example, sexual orientation, disability. Uh, Most state laws are very similar, but uh, some go further than that. So, for example, hate crime laws in 22 states cover transgender identity. Six cover political affiliation, for example, but the, the basic law is very consistent throughout the United States. Actually, I believe transgender identity is now part of our national statute as well. But a hate crime is simply a crime motivated by bias. You punch someone because you dislike blacks, not because you dislike, you know, Marcus, your debating opponent.
1: So to be clear, it's not a crime in its own right. It's um, something that makes an existing crime worse. It's a way of uh, amplifying the seriousness of something which is already a crime.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yes. Under American legal statute, we talk about hate crime enhancement.
1: Okay. And you mentioned that I think 22 states have now made transgender identity a protected characteristic. Yes. Um, and presumably that's happened some point in the last 10 years. Is one of the reasons that there's been an increase on the face of it in hate crimes because the number of protected characteristics is constantly increasing?
2: That's a, that's a good question. The short answer is yes. And I think probing questions like that need to be asked more by scientists and by reporters around this debate. So it's, it's almost meaningless just to say that the number of hate crimes has increased. That depends on what the definition is. That depends on how stringently the hate crime laws are enforced rather than the police simply booking people for fights, so on. So, I mean, I've mentioned uh, some of the state-by-state increases in categories just now, or I mean six states criminalize literal fighting along political lines, which is common in the USA as it is elsewhere. So technically a brawl between Antifa and the Proud Boys could be a hate crime. But, I mean, a lot of individual municipalities go far past even what I just mentioned. So, I mean, I just wrote a piece with your team on Seattle hate crime laws mm-hmm. and the statutes in Seattle. Let's see if I have all this correct, but they penalize attacks that are based on political party, political ideology, homelessness, age, marital status, parental status, which might be someone saying you bastard or something like that and so forth. And I would say mostly as a, report of the, a result of that, Seattle reported 521 quote unquote serious hate incidents and at least hundred twenty five actual prosecutable hate crimes just in twenty eighteen so that's more than thirty three u s states including florida so yes obviously if you expand the definition of a hate to include everyone and you have the usual number of fights and sporting event brawls and so on, then, yeah, you're going to have a larger number of hate crimes. I don't think that's really disputable.
1: So I guess the key question is, if you control for the metastasizing number of protected characteristics, better reporting, and better recording, if you control for those things, is there any evidence that the number of hate crimes has actually risen in the past 10 years or so?
0: the
2: way that we would phrase that in academia is certainly that there is no proof of a statistically significant increase i mean you you can't really know whether it's up twenty or down twenty but i mean you raised a couple of good points there. i mean so to the first point Yes, police departments are very definitely encouraging people to report these incidents more and more. And I think to some extent that's due to the national focus on hate crime, which has produced jobs within police departments in much the same way as you see diversity coordinators within business and within academia. So, I mean, Seattle, to use that city again, uh, just hired a full-time bias crimes coordinator. I believe they had their team fully on board by 2016. And a big part of that job, just very openly, as someone who studies and teaches in criminal justice, is doing, quote-unquote, community outreach to spread the word about what hate crimes are and, frankly, to drum up uh, more hate crime cases. Um, You don't want to be cynical, but there's an element of job preservation there, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in both 2016 and 2017, the number of hate incidents reported in Seattle increased by more than 100. So if that makes sense, out of 500 in each of those two years, you saw a rise of more than 100. I mean, that's half of the, the total number. Uh, I would say that a bigger deal is improvements in reporting and recording of these cases across police departments. So in the USA, we're, we're obviously a federal state, and there's a, there's a fair amount of conflict between the individual states, such as Mississippi or Alaska, and the federal government. So not every police agency in the United States, I'd estimated at around two-thirds, uh, reports hate crime and other felony crime statistics to the FBI. There's probably a perception of, well, why the hell would we tell you how many crimes we have in a town we're trying to present as you know, pleasant and open to tourists? So, I mean, recently, after a period of negotiations, more than 1,000 additional law enforcement agencies – including 215 in large, quote-unquote, metropolitan counties, started reporting hate incidents into the FBI. So, I mean, we've heard a lot about the Trump surge, quote-unquote, which is an increase in hate crimes of about 1,000 between 2016 and 2017. But as I just said, I mean, the key factor variable there is that the number of police departments that started reporting hate crime data to the feds in 2017 also increased by 1,000. So if each of those just reported hate crimes at the national average rate, that would explain probably more than half of the Trump surge. And again, I will say there's no reason to assume that large departments that neglected to report crime rates until last year are experiencing only the national average rate of crime. I mean, I would assume substantially more than that, perhaps double that, although that is an estimate. But, I mean, that would explain most of the surge before you get into definitions and before you get into increased outreach by departments. So, I mean, no, there's not really much evidence that if you take out a thousand additional big police departments and the other things we've been talking about, that there's much of an increase in hate crimes at all. And that's not me as, you know, bantering center-right commentator. That's just... A logical statement. I mean if there's an increase of a thousand crimes and an increase of a thousand departments there's a pretty obvious XY relationship that you need to look at before you look at anything else I would say.
1: And you make the point in your Quillette piece that only a small percentage of crimes reported as hate crimes end up being classed by police departments and prosecutors as hate crimes and prosecuted, and then only a small percentage of them are actually successfully prosecuted?
2: The percentage of hate crimes that lead to a formal conviction, which in my data set includes plea bargains, is about 7%. So if you look at California data, which is from the largest and most reliable of our state reporters, there were 931 reported felony or serious misdemeanor hate crimes in the very typical year of 2016. But only 220 of them were, one, reported to the prosecutor, and two, resulted in actual charges, which is just a baseline standard, meaning we have any kind of suspect in mind or in custody, and we don't think the case was a hoax. I've just sent over to the prosecutor doesn't mean a conviction. And exactly 51 of those led to a hate crimes conviction. Um, that's 5.5 percent. That's fairly typical because of the large number of both hate hoaxes and perhaps more often just ambiguous cases. Someone draws a swastika on a bench. Is it a white racist? Is it a black guy who doesn't much like Jews? Is it a Jewish guy making a point? Is it a joke from a fraternity? So because of all that, you don't have a very high conviction rate. I mean, about a fifth of conviction rates I've seen state by state for murder, for example.
1: And one of the surprising things which really jumped out at me when I read your article uh, was the high number of the people convicted for hate crimes in Seattle were homeless people.
2: Is that is that typical? Well, I don't think that's typical nationally. I think that that's unsurprising in Seattle because of their decision to expand the definition so broadly that a great number of things that wouldn't normally be counted as hate crimes at all, like garbled drunken insults were included in that pool. So I think that normally there's a much lower rate of reporting of hate crime, probably indicating more serious incidents, but I think more cities are moving down that dangerous path that Seattle walked down. And yeah, I mean, I actually just pulled up this data on my laptop. I mean, it wasn't just homeless people. Uh, According to the city auditor, at least 22% of hate perps were quote-unquote living unsheltered at the time of their crime, which strikes me as an even more politically correct way to say homeless. I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen that before. Uh, 20% or a bit more were mentally ill and crazy, and another 20% were drunks or otherwise severely intoxicated, heroin addicts, people stumbling around on the street outside of bars. So almost none of the hate crimes, again, and not almost none, 30% or something on that order, involved what you would think of as a potential serious hate crime, a group of sober, violent, white, or black men attacking the other side, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Most of them were drunks yelling a few words or people shoving each other outside of bars. Um, You don't want to make fun of this. It's unfortunate, but mentally ill, homeless people yelling nonsense the definition of hate crime had simply been expanded so broadly that those cases were treated as hate crimes, at least initially in the city of Seattle. I, I think that's fairly unusual.
1: And your estimate that you mentioned a little earlier—that you think about fifteen percent of hate crimes are hoaxes—just, I mean, just, just to be clear, what is that fifteen percent of? Is that fifteen percent of reported? serious hate incidents, but which haven't yet been classified as crimes? Or is that 15% of those which are actually classified by police departments as crimes and investigated?
2: That's a good question. Um, The overlap there is extraordinarily substantial. So my data set right now is 608 case studies, quote unquote, of hoax hate crime, which are concentrated very substantially in the past five years. And those case studies include, if I recall correctly, 830 individual incidents of hate crime. And there is a police report, or there is involvement of the police in at least 90% of those cases. So I think that that data set is comparable to a subset of the pool of hate crimes overall. So there are about 7,000 hate crimes reported in a typical year in the U.S.A., And of those, I would estimate that about 8 to 10%, it was 7.3% when I actually checked this, were widely reported enough for an ethical researcher to become aware of whether or not they had been debunked. So out of a subset of, say, 700 nationally reported hate crime cases in a typical year, in every typical year, I have, let's say, between 2015 and 2019, 400 individual incidents of confirmed hoax, and that is how I estimate the, uh, the hoax rate at 15%. The question of classification is a bit interesting because it is the police department, it's the initial law enforcement agency that classifies a matter as a hate crime, but that doesn't always happen in the uh, first report that's filed. It generally does, not always. And, of course, it's the prosecution in the USA and in most other nations that makes the decision to prosecute as a hate crime. So I couldn't say the exact percentage of the police-reported hate crime hoaxes I have that were actually classified as hate crimes, if that makes sense. Uh, What I can say is that I I think the data sets are quite comparable. So over four years, I've got 400 hoaxes, almost all of which involved the cops. And in each of those years, there were only about 700 hate crimes reported to the point where I could really become aware of them and analyze them. Um, I would say that comparison to the pool of incidents actually classified as hate crimes is valid. But again, you'd have to take that on a case-by-case basis.
1: When you first started studying hate crimes, um, and in particular, hate crime hoaxes, and started compiling this data set, Um, Were you expecting the number to be so large, or were you uh, surprised by just how many uh, hate crimes turned out to be hoaxes?
2: I was a, a bit surprised. When I began looking at analysis of this field, there were two widely disparate estimates. So on the one hand, you have, and I in general have a collegial relationship with these gentlemen, fairly good relationship with them, but on the one hand, you had center-left scholars like Brian Levin, who's in the UC University system, who estimated that there were almost no hate crime hoaxes. As I recall, Mr. Levin, in the typical year of 2016, said that there were 23 uh, hate crime hoaxes nationally in the United States. Uh, On another typical year, he estimated there were 17. And on the other side of the fence, you had conservative researchers that tended to take a good deal of mockery in the mainstream media, essentially because they were conservative, so far as I can tell. But um, Ann Coulter, Dinesh D'Souza, um, perhaps the team behind the fake hate map leads right, that would be my impression, I don't know. But they pointed out that there were a great many widely publicized, media-covered incidents that were obviously fakes, going back to Tawana Brawley, going back to Duke Lacrosse, so on down the line. So you have these two estimates. Uh, Ann Coulter once famously said, it's no surprise that this turned out to be a hoax. They all turn out to be hoaxes, don't they? Referring to a high-profile hate incident. So you have these two estimates of almost 0% and almost 100%. And I knew that I would find something between those polls because mathematically you literally could not Um, I wasn't quite sure of what it would be. And I've I've interacted with both camps. I'm a fairly outgoing person, a networker and so forth. But, I mean, I found out that Brian Levin, for example, uses a fairly restrictive definition. So his definition would be a case that is not only reported, that's in my definition as well, um, but that is classified as a hate crime, as you mentioned, and also I believe that is prosecuted, one, that then, two, collapses in a very specific situation or context, which is that the police department formally admits that they messed up and that the original report was false, and where the victim themselves is the person directly responsible for making up the story. And please please tell me if I need to clarify anything there, but that's the narrow okay. uh, definition of a hate hoax that produced that estimate of 23 And on the other end, you see a great number of cases classified and discussed that aren't really crimes or even serious incidents that could have led to discipline, but um, shouted words that turn out perhaps not to have happened and so on. I use a definition that's pretty intermediate. So my cutoff for considering something a hate crime hoax is that, one, there's an undisputed report, by which I mean police report or essentially national media story, of two, a serious incident. Uh, obviously, I include felonies. I will say I also include misdemeanors, which some researchers don't. And I also include incidents that could have led to terminal workplace or campus discipline, because so many of these occur on college campuses, as you probably know. Um, that three was attributed to outgroup bias um, by the victim, by the police, by the media. That four was debunked. And I have a couple categories of debunking. One is the victim made it up. But two is that the alleged crime never occurred at all. Uh, there was a near riot on a U.S. university campus, for example, because someone said that a noose had been hung on the campus. And this received literally national coverage. It turned out the noose was simply a dangling rope from a nearby construction site. That I would put in as a false hate crime or as a hate crime hoax. I'm comfortable using that term given the notoriety that this rope gained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and third, I count case cases debunked if it turns out to have been committed not by the individual originally accused, but by someone very different, uh, generally a non- or anti-racist prankster. Mm-hmm. So, for example, between 2015 and 2016, there were more than 2,000 calls made into Jewish community centers in the USA, also down in Oz, in Australia, New Zealand, in Canada, making just the wildest possible threats. Uh, the guy claimed to be a white supremacist, as I recall. He said he was going to come in and murder Jews. There's going to be a Jewish new town. I'm going to bring the camps back. It turned out that this individual was not a white supremacist. He was actually a philo-Semitic, as far as I can tell, Jewish Israeli hacker who was just practicing for a darknet business of his, which involved making threats. That's literally the background story. Um, So all of the calls turned out to be hoaxes. There was no intent to attack these centers whatsoever. The guy responsible was a Jew who lived in Israel. So I would count that as a hate crime hoax. Uh, even though something happened, because what happened had nothing to do with quote-unquote surging racial tensions in our society. It was a prank by a lunatic, if that makes sense. So I have an intermediate definition of hate crime hoax between, you know, the police themselves say they messed up, the report is wholly false on the one hand, and two, we think this might have collapsed. I require a nationally or regionally reported definite collapse, but I also include things where the case obviously didn't turn out in to be what had been suspected early on, where the case was a prank, it was a joke, it was a lie, so on down the line.
1: You mentioned Ann Coulter saying uh, this will probably turn out to be a hoax, they all do. And I guess one criticism of this line of research is that interesting though it may be uh, from a sociological point of view, Um, uh, Nonetheless, if you are exposing the number of hate crimes which turn out to be hoaxes, aren't you undermining the credibility of genuine victims when they report them? Aren't you increasing the cynicism of the media, perhaps even the police, when responding to these reports if you publicize the fact that so many of the reports do turn out to be hoaxes? I mean, that must be a criticism you encounter uh, quite a lot.
2: Sure. I think that to be a scientist, you have to believe that the truth will out. I.e., you have to believe that there's a value to knowledge. Um, Many people, going back to the Holy Roman Emperors, if not before, have argued quite convincingly that there are many things that the hoi polloi, the common people, shouldn't know. A specific feature of the Anglo-American tradition of scientific inquiry is the assumption that that is not true. So I suppose at some level pointing out that a very high number, I estimate 15, Ms. Coulter estimates nearly 100%, that a very high number of hate crime allegations turn out to be hoaxes could generate a little more suspicion directed at real victims. Uh, I think the response is that pointing out that a number of cases with specific characteristics turn out to be hoaxes, and then strongly encouraging the prosecution of hoaxers, as I do, would decrease the number of hoaxers, thus, once again, making people more sympathetic to those people that have actually experienced a crime. Again, I can't emphasize enough that the police, when someone comes in and says, for example, I was raped, which is another area where there's a substantial rate of false reporting, the police should be sympathetic, they should be calm, they should be professional. But the flip side of that is that they must ask for evidence, they must use a female officer or whatever is necessary to find out the story, and they have to see whether there's any sign that anything happened. One of the things I do in hoax, by the way, is point out that there are specific characteristics of hate crime hoaxes. So I'll say here on a, you know a rather prominent piece of the record, that I don't think anyone doubts that if there is violence after clothes at a biker bar or a tough black club, that probably happened. Uh, there obviously are hate crimes. Attacks on gay people, attacks on Jews, for example, are very, very likely to be real. No one's denying that. But there also are characteristics of hate crime hoaxes, Um, flamboyant cinematic story, lack of evidence, so on, that police and others, reporters, need to look for if we want to protect real victims. And I I will say, uh, I gave a short list of these earlier, but I'm, I'm looking at my notes here. There's no way to deny, in the sense of we need to protect those who are alleging misdemeanor assault or something, there's no way to deny that most of the very high-profile, widely publicized hate crime incidents in the recent past, the biggest ones, have turned out to be hoaxes. I mean, so Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Yasmin Saweed, Eastern Michigan, Air Force Academy, Grand Rapids. I, mean, I forgot to mention Key in College, where death threats were made to literally every black student on campus via high tech. Uh, Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses across the campus, Uh, the UVA rape where the claim was that the fraternities were running, you know, story of O style anti-feminist rape rings upstairs. Duke lacrosse, perhaps the OG in this sector, those were all fakes. And those cases had an enormous impact on race relations in America. So I think while you have to be careful of the feelings of real victims, you can't simply let something like Jussie Smollett stand. I mean, if that is fictional, you're doing a great service by pointing out that that's fictional.
1: Is there a pattern amongst those who actually perpetrate these hoaxes? Is there a typical hate crime hoaxer? Or is it just a whole variety of different people hoaxing hate crimes for different reasons?
2: Well, I think that there certainly are patterns. I mean, one of the most obvious and shocking to me was the number of these hoaxes that take place on college campuses. So at one point, I was comparing my data set with the data set at fakehatecrimes.org. And I and a research associate, and we were in communication with their site for a a short but real period of time, good good group of people from what I could tell. But uh, all of us were going through the first nine pages of that site and looking at every case and comparing it to some of my cases. And we found out that out of 269 cases on the first nine pages of that site, 98, if I recall correctly, had taken place on a university, college, or senior high school campus. Uh, It was more than a third of the sample. It was almost half the sample. And that is despite the fact that only about 2% of people are enrolled in those kind of educational settings. You can't help wondering if kind of the hothouse, guilt-mongering environment that you have in a lot of American, or for that matter, British or Australian, from what I've heard, academia uh, contributes to this, uh, this pattern of hoaxes. And there are other characteristics of a hate crime hoaxer more broadly, or of a hate crime hoax. And I, again, I think it's very important in light of your question, how do we avoid harming victims? Uh, characteristic one, I think, is a ridiculous cinematic story, or at least a flamboyant story. Mr. Smollett, for example, if I recall correctly, claimed that on the coldest day of the year, he'd been attacked in one of Chicago's most diverse neighborhoods. I'm from Chicago, probably 15% black, 20% gay in that neighborhood. By two white supremacists wearing bright red MAGA hats, carrying a gallon bottle of bleach and a knotted rope noose, who immediately recognized him from a hip-hop television show that has almost entirely a young black audience, identified him by name and attacked him. And he said that he then beat off these two large Caucasian fighting men, uh, ran away with the noose still around his neck and his Subway sandwich still in his hand, escaped and called the cops. When you hear something like that, it's worth asking questions beyond, oh, how terrible, what can we do to help? And one of those questions should be, why should I believe that's real? Uh, Another characteristic of hate crime hoaxes is simply a lack of evidence. Um, one of the things that people complain constantly about, both in the USA and the Anglosphere more broadly, is the presence of cameras everywhere. If you quote unquote hook up in public or if there's a scuffle or if someone pees outside, it's very likely you'll see a ticket show up at your house you can't drive past a red light. So, what are the odds that someone was involved in a brutal racial brawl, and that was seen by absolutely no one? Mm-hmm. That's point two. One of the characteristics I notice also is that people who are involved in these hoax situations very often have a previous history of either hard left or alt-right activism. That's something very notable. Uh, Another point is the pursuit of money. So very often one of the things that clues at least me off to a hoax is the ubiquitous GoFundMe going up a day or two after the incident happens, especially in cases where there's been no police report made. Uh, In one case that's included in the book, for example, a woman raised uh, $43,000 after claiming that her neighbors had insulted the sexual identity of her yard. Uh, They said it was too gay and mocked her. There was no report filed, as I recall. Um, $43,000 was raised, and when it was determined that the case was probably a hoax, I don't know if this one was ever prosecuted, she ended up returning all the money. But immediately fundraising without the standard... Uh, pursuit of justice I think is another characteristic.
1: So let's get to the nub of the issue which is the willingness, the credulousness with which these stories are believed. I mean why is it that so many people want to believe seemingly that there has been a surge in hate crimes particularly since Donald Trump was elected, why do they object to any forensic interrogation of the data of the kind that you've been doing? What is it about contemporary American society that so many people want to believe that we are in the midst of a kind of race war in which these incidents are occurring with extraordinary frequency and with increasing frequency? Why do people want to believe it?
2: Well, I think there are two levels there. First, I don't think most people want to believe. And I think political correctness is a powerful force. So, I mean, I'm in my mid-30s. I go to dinner parties. I'm not a teetotaler. And at these gatherings, the reaction to my book from both whites, middle class, blacks, whatever, has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, People very often will say something like, well, that's, and I suppose all blacks, I don't know, I'd break either group down by class, but whatever, most people at dinner parties aren't broke. Anyway, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, most people have said things like, I knew the Jussie Smollett case was a hoax probably from the jump. Stuff like that doesn't generally occur, but I felt I couldn't say it. This is especially true for Caucasians, by the way, for whatever reason. Uh, the reason probably being that there's much more criticism uh, targeted at that racial population if you do step out and speak honestly. Mm-hmm. But the response was we all knew all these cases were fake. We just couldn't talk about them. We felt that saying – and this this gets into a broader question where people will say, I feel that saying a whole bunch of things, that the police aren't murdering young African-American men um, – the reason there are more young men and specifically more african-american men in jail or prison is that those populations have higher crime rates Uh, men and women are genetically different Um, in terms of athletic competition for example you can not simply shift from one to the other these are things that almost all people i encounter will express in private but that there's a substantial taboo against expressing in public so for a great many people it's probably not so much that you believe that the fraternities at a gentlemanly Old South school are raping dozens of people. It's that you don't want to say they're not and get into a shouting match with a feminist friend. So that's level one. I think level two of this, though, is that there's a substantial and entrenched grievance industry in the United States Mm -hmm. uh, to a greater extent than anything I've noticed in Europe or when I was in Latin America. And I think many of the people that work in this field are people that do want these cases to be real. So, a quirk of American public life is that whole sectors of our society, whether you're talking about the continuation of affirmative action, which now applies to literally everyone who's not white, with some exceptions in the Asian pool, and that includes recently arrived foreign immigrants, a continuation of that, the continuation of minority set-asides, the budgets for the giant activist groups, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center alone has a well-invested endowment of $470 million as of this year, they take in about 140 million a year. All of that is based on the idea that the United States of 2019 is still a racist, prejudiced, conflicted country. If it's not, why write a check for a hundred thousand dollars to Al Sharpton's National Action Network or to the SPLC? And the reality is that I and many other researchers don't necessarily don't empirically think that that's true. So, I mean, we've obviously had our problems with race, but the country desegregated, at least began that process in 1954. Uh, The Civil Rights Act, which made most racism criminally and civilly illegal, that was 1965. Uh, Pro-minority affirmative action, which didn't at all hurt me when I applied to law school, began in 1967 with the Philadelphia Plan under Mr. Nixon. And at present, if you actually look at statistics on racial performance, I mean, black unemployment just hit an all-time low uh... fifteen percent or more of marriages are mixed in racial terms so there's not a whole lot of evidence of the conflict that's needed to sustain this infrastructure i think this is almost an economic problem uh... the demand for bigotry is beginning to outweigh the supply So when evidence of old-school racism pops up or sexism or whatnot there's no shortage of people that want to push that to the front of the queue and say look look this problem never went away And I think that's why the Jussie Smollett situation, for example, got so much press. Jussie Smollett headlined, Good Morning America. If you absent the racial angle, this is one man possibly drunk at 2 a.m. getting in a fight with two men possibly drunk at 2 a.m. I mean, there's no story there except for the racial uh, angle.
1: Um, You talk about the grievance industry. I mean, one thing that um, I've always been curious about is it clearly, as you've pointed out, um, many of the people in the grievance business have a vested interest in perpetuating the idea that America is a society riven with bigotry of every stripe. They have a financial vested interest in perpetuating that idea, Uh, their careers depend upon it, and so forth. But um, do you think that they are just straightforwardly grifters, that they know that actually none of these things are true, and they need to make it up uh, in order to kind of maintain their careers and their livelihoods uh, or do you think that actually even though they do manipulate the data and ignore forensic empirical criticism of the kind you've produced uh, nevertheless ideologically they still do believe what they're saying
2: I think that that depends uh, I will note for legal purposes by the way I have no evidence that Jussie Smollett or his attackers were drunk or on drugs okay um, but I'm sort of kidding there, but I don't know. Anyway, wandering around 2 in the morning, unusual fight was the claim. But um, so in terms of your question, which is a very serious question, do the people leading the grievance industry know what they're doing? Uh, I think the answer is some of them. I will say that in the lower echelons, I don't actually think so. Um, In my next book, which is called Taboo, The Difficulty and Importance of Discussing Race and Class, which should be out this upcoming January, uh, I look at what I call the continuing oppression narrative, which is the storyline behind the epidemic of hate hoaxes, I think, to a very large extent. And I do find and there's some scientific polling in the book, and I'm looking for it now, people in academia react to that, but I do find that... A very large number of people, especially in the black community, do believe a lot of things that are pretty dubious. Um, The majority of African-Americans believe that the police kill unprovokedly uh, hundreds, if not thousands, or ten thousands of innocent black people every year. Uh, The majority percentage of Americans believe that there is a great amount of white-on-black crime. And this is very publicized. I don't know if you're familiar with the Barbecue Becky and Pool Party Paula and so on um, cases that have gone viral here in the USA, but there have been a lot of widely publicized incidents of what seem to be white people attacking black people or calling the police on black people for no reason. Uh, There's a great deal of academic writing about these interesting new conceptions of racism, white privilege, cultural appropriation, uh, implicit bias, mm-hmm. so on down the line. So I think a lot of people really do believe that all of this continues to exist, that racism didn't disappear or didn't begin to diminish. And as as we'll explore, that's very untrue, mm-hmm. but didn't begin to diminish in, say, the 1950s, but is still here. It just changed form and went underground. Mm-hmm. And when you examine uh, these narratives, they almost always collapse. I mean... For example, in terms of Black Lives Matter, I'll note from the new book, uh, the total number of people shot by the police in a typical year is under a 1,000. Even the Washington Post has confirmed this. A typical year at most, 250 of those will be black. At most, 100 will be unarmed people of any race. In the typical year that I look at in the book, 2015, the total number of unarmed, specifically black people shot by specifically white cops was 17. So the BLM narrative, which got a good number of black people killed, by the way, is based on facts that aren't real. Uh, Same thing's true of interracial crime. Interracial crime is a fairly small percentage of crime. Typical year, they're going to be about 500,000 interracial, violent, or serious property crimes. There are about 12 million crimes. When interracial crime does occur, at least between blacks and whites, it's more than 70% black on white. That's never discussed. So this narrative collapses, but it's extremely prevalent. And I think many of the people that do work in what we've both called the grievance industry probably believe in white privilege or cultural appropriation and believe they're doing good. Um, my strong opinion is that the people at the predatory top of any field are generally sociopaths that know what they're doing. Right. So I am sure, and that's a very strong opinion from years in business and academia and so on at fairly high levels. So I'm fairly sure that there are people. And at the leadership peak of these groups, and this might be true of the reverends Jesse and Al, I've never haven't met him personally, but I mean, for the average person working for these organizations, I would say that there's a substantial amount of belief that what they're doing is a good, noble cause. As you say,
1: you can express these sentiments, you can break these taboos, say the unsayable at dinner parties, and be applauded for it, The not in every case, um, but uh, if you say them, <laughs> if you say them in public, uh, particularly uh, at colleges or universities, um, you can quite often be punished. Have you have you been punished in any way for saying this stuff? Any any pushback from Kentucky State University? Any student protests?
2: No, no, certainly no student protests. No, not really. I mean, maybe a few askance glances, but I mean. This gets into a bunch of things. I mean, first, you're absolutely right that political correctness is an extremely powerful force in our society. Uh, I, myself, a fairly cocky, aggressive guy, have noticed that throughout this conversation, there have been at least four points where I've said something like, well, legally we can't say, you know, this is the case. Um, I don't feel comfortable. That that has become a second language for upper-middle-class Americans and Europeans to a striking extent. Uh, Many people would not post on their social media things that they consider to be blindingly obvious, such as the statement, men and women are different, or IQ is real. I've discussed both with friends of mine who work in academia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that is an extraordinarily powerful force, and it can be backed up by actual punishment, actual sanction. Uh, Andy No, who works for Quillette, obviously one mm-hmm. of your editors, I understand. Good, casual friend of mine. We've exchanged probably a hundred messages online. I mean, he was recently beaten by a mob for mm-hmm. the sin of filming Antifa, filming left wing fighters doing what they do—brawling in the streets, mm-hmm. attacking people, and so forth. And their response to his documenting these forbidden facts was to brawl in the streets and attack him. Mm-hmm. So yes, political correctness is real. It's sometimes enforced by force or at least social sanction. Then this is a real problem. Political correctness is not just annoying, it's insidious, in that it removes the kind of antibodies that a free democracy naturally has. Normally, when absurd things happen, people step forward and they critique them. And today, that seems to be happening less and less often because of this fear. Um, I'll give an example. Were you aware that in the States, a biological man just won the woman's track and field championships? regardless of your feelings about what people's souls might be on the inside, this was a fairly absurd spectacle. I mean, the person who'd been ranked in the top 200 in the world on the men's side of the docket in several events... Uh, switched over, declared that they were female, I don't believe there'd been any surgeries or anything like this, and completely dominated the women's meet. Mm-hmm. And the response to this was almost overwhelmingly praise. Mm-hmm. And not in the comment sections, but in the headlines themselves, and I think that's an important difference. So at any rate, political correctness is a problem. However, I think another narrative storyline there is that political correctness is concentrated here, and I think in Europe, in a fairly small urban coastal elite to a degree that's pretty remarkable you know i read the other day for example um... i was looking at an analysis from i think wired comparing twitter and facebook and facebook has something like two point three eight billion users including two hundred million in the united states uh... twitter on the other hand has about three hundred million active users including maybe twenty million in the united states and only about a third of those use their accounts frequently So. Most of the debate, when people talk about what's going on on Twitter or what's going on in the feud between, say, the woke community and the alt-right, is occurring between, say, 7 million individuals at the maximum, only a few of whom have real influence, uh, concentrated in a few cities. Where I'm going with all this, I guess, is that living a normal life in a good-sized provincial city—I live in the downtown of the Kentucky State Capitol in sort of our condo um, district—I've experienced very little hostility for writing the book— Uh, K-State is a relaxed um, middle class, if that matters, historically black college. Uh, Very Southern, very traditional. Men can't be in the women's dormitory after 10 p.m. and that kind of thing. And, I mean, students who disagreed with me have mostly come by and had a cup of coffee or tea and argued with me about the book. I mean, that might sound cliche, but that's exactly what has happened. So I think that the the large rioting woke mobs, uh, I think you'd find that in a few places, L.A., Maybe my hometown of Chicago, where a Trump rally was shut down by a full scale riot. But no, I don't think you're going to find much of that in Kentucky. And I don't think you'd find much of that in most of the USA. I think that most people in most countries are normal, are going to college because they want to get a good job, are able to amicably discuss politics. I think that the views of a few nut jobs are magnified by the focus of the media, which is also coastal, urban, and elite, on things like Twitter debates and riots on the nation's 10 largest campuses. So no, I haven't had anything like that occur at all.
1: Okay, well, look, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, fascinating. Um, and I think I could talk to you all day. But uh, Professor Riley, thank you very much for talking to Quillette.
2: Thank you for having me. I uh, greatly enjoyed the conversation.
1: Assistant Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University about his new book, Hate Crime Hunks How the Left is Selling a Fake Voice war I began by asking him about the legal definition of a hate crime and (sighs) then.